You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 231 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode we are going over to the dark side a bit. My guest is Dr. Heather Lin. She is an author, historian and renegade archaeologist on a quest to uncover the truth behind ancient mysteries. One of her recent books is called Evil Archaeology. This work is an investigation into the historical and archaeological evidence of demons, curses and possession featuring some of the most gruesome artifacts and sites ever discovered. So thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and what you do? Well, I am an author, historian, and renegade archaeologist. Um, so I have training in history and archaeology, um, but I didn't have necessarily the conventional path through academia. I dropped out of high school when I was 16 years old, and I traveled the country uh, sort of on a spiritual quest, I think you could say. I visited a lot of different churches and temples and places of worship trying to get an idea of uh, what was out there. Uh, I think because I was raised Catholic and uh, I just you know, I, I had a different calling. I was looking for answers. And, you know, so I just I went on a little adventure and left the Shire a lot too young. And, uh, you know, it, it it didn't work out so well. I mean, as you could expect, you don't really make it too far when you're 16 with no education. So I ended up, uh, you know, going back to school. And in doing so, I started at community college. And uh, during my studies at community college, I decided to follow the path again of what I love, and I started studying history and archaeology, and uh, you know, transitioned to my bachelor's and master's in history and and doctorate and so on. And so, I think I got the the title renegade from uh, some friends who basically saw that I was not necessarily of the traditional path in academia, um, mostly because I didn't take too kindly to the approaches that I I, uh, I was being taught in the academy. So uh, a lot of emphasis was placed on sort of a postmodernist or, you know, uh, interpretation of history that uh, really discredited or discounted the idea of pseudo-archaeologist, which, of course, pseudo-archaeology does sound very um, pejorative. So, you know, right off the bat, it would seem like probably a good idea not to embrace something pseudo. But uh, I'll give you an example. In my um, uh, first archaeology class, literally Archaeology 101, I went in and on the board there was written a bunch of names of authors that I recognized from some earlier uh, research that I had done. Names like Michael Cremo or Graham Hancock and, and you know, some uh, people that I thought were interesting. And even if I hadn't necessarily agreed with their theories, I I didn't really think anything of it except that uh, our instruction was to debunk these archaeologists or pseudo-archaeologists as they call them. And I thought, well, okay, so right off the bat, we were just sort of indoctrinated with this idea that, you know, rather than argue theories on their own merits or try to build a comprehensive argument or have honest discourse, it was blatantly and explicitly told that what we really need to do is make sure that we um, sort of cover our own behinds. We need to basically stick together as professionals and don't let anybody else in. Otherwise, it dilutes or de or devalues our own professionalism or position in, you know, the the sort of the expert sphere. And I thought, oh, that's that's <laughs> that didn't sit well with me either. So I just I came across a lot of different um, areas of corruption here and there um, in my you know, academic work and, and beyond and my professional work. And uh, I always had this interest in alternative ideas. I think it really started from those times that I traveled across the country. And, you know, I would listen to late night radio and talk to different people in different states of with all these different experiences they had. And I was fascinated with their theories, and really open to their their ideas. And so I always kept that kind of alternative spirit with me. And uh, I decided that 
I, the best course of action for me was not to accept a uh, faculty position at a university and instead go out and research the things that I wanted to research, uh, you know, independently. And so now what I do is I look into alternative theories, um, everything from uh, ancient aliens <laughs> to um, consciousness history, um, you name it. If it's called alternative, I've been looking at, at that and primarily dealing with the history of it or the archaeology around it. It's funny because in what the mainstream calls pseudo-archaeology or pseudo-historians, uh, within that group, there there are real crackpots that are hidden deep within that. So maybe it's those people who give the rest uh, a bad reputation. I think so. And I think the problem then becomes the, well, for, for instance, this is a, I, I don't like to think of myself as a crackpot. I usually try to make sure that everything I do is based in science and uh, fully cited. And so my new book, Evil Archaeology, that came out before it came out on Amazon, it was up for pre-order and a group of mainstream archaeologists actually got together and started slamming it online and they even went so far as to review it on Amazon before the book came out saying that it was a terrible book that it was going to be you know all about attacking academia and all these different things when they hadn't even read the book and it was clearly not a controversial book and it's like I said fully cited and there's nothing really out of the ordinary in it although I, I think it's interesting and maybe dealing with some less discussed topics but uh, it's certainly nothing uh, that anyone would object to. It doesn't take any controversial stance, at least not in my opinion. Maybe I'm wrong, but I certainly didn't think it deserved to be, um, <laughs> you know, poorly rated before it even came out. But that's just, you know, the typical thing that, that you get in this this field when you're going against the mainstream. In fact, there was an article published recently in, uh, I think it was sciencemag.org. It might have been the original post, but it got spread all over the internet. And it was an article about the dangers of pseudo-archaeology and the dangers of alternative archaeology. And it's sort of, um, it went on to basically say that anybody who looks at, into theories, especially Atlantis, were white supremacists. And that instead of mainstream archaeologists, you know, taking this, you know, like, ignore and see approach or just ignoring it altogether that they should get together and really try to take people down who are doing this and i thought wow we're, we're entering a new kind of phase of you know maybe more of an aggressive approach that just sounded a little little bit scary and i thought no nah. <laughs> I, I i yeah it's 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 really troubling it's gotten worse but i do think that some of the more outlandish ideas if you will have given things a bad name but in the in the sense of academic freedom, and this is something that I really, um, th I think this is why I have a lot of um, clashing of ideas with people in the mainstream. Um, I think of alternative ideas as very important to the creative process. A lot of people don't want to think of science or academic work as being creative. It should be maybe just unbiased, or there should be no create creative element to it. But I. I kind of disagree. I think there's a reason for creativity in it to at least get people hypothesizing or looking in different directions. And so I look at alternative theories like mushrooms in the forest of human understanding. Some are deadly poisons, some are benign, and others may actually be psychedelic and have mind expansion capabilities. So do we handle the toxic mushrooms by destroying all of them? You know, if so, then we risk the delicate symbiotic ecosystem of the forest Otherwise, do we ban people from entering the forest? And then this would be sort of putting limits on individual freedom. So I always think that the best way to deal with these mushrooms is to teach people the necessary skills to identify which ones are good, bad, or even neutral. And so I think the problem is that the mainstream is coming across a situation where they're realizing they have not genuinely educated people enough to allow them the freedom to apply their critical thinking um, to this sort of field of knowledge. And I think that that's, that's a failing on them and it's a moral duty on behalf of educators to give people those skills so that they can navigate the good ideas and the bad ideas and maybe even take some of those bad ideas and say, wait a minute, that, that spurred a different idea that maybe is a great idea because a lot of good ideas come out of bad ideas. So I think ultimately it comes down to personal sovereignty and, and personal responsibility 
and what role educators and professionals play in the process of knowledge acquisition. And I think these days, though, it's becoming just sexier to take a hardline approach to issues because the alternative is just too complicated. So, you know, I think that things like this truth seeking and research and all these alternative ideas, they're just very complex and they can't be solved with black and white approaches like banning discussions on topics like Atlantis. And so, you know, I think you, you take the, the, the good with the bad. Do you think a lot of it has to do with the fear of being wrong? Because one big thing now for the past five, six years is the, is the age of civilization and when did it start? And, uh, and uh, many researchers are showing that it's much older than we think and the mainstream don't like this and even though there's new sites popping up everywhere with uh, complex structures way older than uh, the pyramids and uh, there must come a time when these mainstream scientists realize they can't really ignore the evidence anymore and and uh, say that it's just uh, some hunter-gatherers who we're carving big rocks, you know? I think you're exactly right. I think that um, it comes down to not wanting to rewrite the history books to some extent, and uh, not just in the practical sense, although that is sometimes a concern. Uh, I think what it is is when you take a professor or somebody that has built their whole career on holding on to one particular model of how something is, and then you say, oh, guess what? It may not have been. That's that's really difficult, even just personally. And so, um, yeah, I think I think that it's definitely the case. And and we're seeing evidence all the time coming out about a number of things that literally call for the rewriting of of history books. And you know, but then you still have people who are holdouts, and even in the face of knowledge. So uh, you have you know people who still believe that Neanderthals and in Homo sapiens sapiens never uh, interbred. And it's like, okay, well, you might have been able to hold on to that belief 20 years ago, maybe. But now it's it's absolutely ridiculous. We have physical evidence. There's genetic evidence. There's ev- there's evidence. It's clear. Um, and so, but there are still people in the mainstream that say, oh, no, no, I, I reject that idea. So it's it's like pulling teeth to get people to budge out of their comfort zone. And I think in earlier time, it was, um, you know, it wasn't so bad because the, the the speed at which people could communicate these ideas or even these discoveries, it wasn't as great as, as it is today. And so they were playing a slower game of whack-a-mole. But now it's like out of control and they just can't keep up with it. And I think that's creating a lot of havoc in the mainstream. What I don't understand is their resistance to change because if I take myself as an example, ever since I was a child, I've always been fascinated with Joseph of Arimathea because he was the guy, the the last guy who was connected with the, probably the Holy Grail. And uh, I've privately, not for any official reasons, but just privately always uh, investigated the, the Holy Grail and Joseph of Arimathea in particular. And uh, I've done it for maybe 20 years and... Uh, working on something on a book about it now but in those 20 years I changed my conclusion many times I think that's what good and honest scholars do and so then at that at that point then we have to call a lot of mainstream scholars not good or honest because um, you know and, and I would hate to paint people with such a broad brush but there is there is giving them the benefit of the doubt and saying well you know, they just don't want to hurt their careers or they're just, you know, fragile, their egos are fragile. Or there's the other, you know, maybe more, uh, dare I say, conspiratorial end of it where um, you could look at what Orwell said. And he said, the omission is the most powerful form of a lie. And it is the duty of the historians to ensure that those lies do not creep into the history books. And so the idea that, you know, that, that control can be had through controlling what goes into what is taught in history. I mean, history is a very powerful tool of influence. And so, it, you know, it, it, isn't, it isn't hard to make that leap into thinking that maybe there is a concerted effort behind the scenes to control what information comes out and uh, for what reasons. I mean, that, that could be a number of different reasons based on the motivations of a number of different groups. And 
Um, you know, so it's really hard, but archaeology is definitely an area where people can join together and get excited about learning who we are and why we're here. Um, and they can also, the discoveries can be a source of national pride and unity because people recognize they have a shared heritage. It has the power to people, uh, it has the power to bring people together, but it can also be used to pull people apart for those very same reasons. And so, you know, if you erase the past, you can control the future. And I think that there probably is an element of control, you know, in, in there somewhere that, you know, again, I hate to say that they don't want you to know about our past, but, you know, if it if, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, as they say, um, it's it's really hard not to st- start looking at it as a reasonable person. As you said, you, you, in your research, you changed your mind many a time based on the evidence that you saw. I do the same thing. I've changed my mind on a lot of different issues as I'm researching it and, and the evidence, you know, starts to take form and shape the um, narrative that I have in my mind. And so I have to be flexible in how I'm looking at these things. And so if I think, well, you know, the, surely reasonable people do this, but then if they're not, then they're either not reasonable or they have an agenda, in my opinion. One interesting event I was part of was I uh, had a friend, he, he married a Turkish woman, and uh, many years ago, I can't remember when, uh, maybe 100 years ago, uh, there was a, a genocide in Turkey, and the Turkish government killed a lot of Assyrians, it's a proper genocide, most of the West know about it, and in Turkey, this is a, um, they say it didn't happen, it never happened. And uh, my friend's Turkish wife, she was uh, educated in Turkey and she got a PhD in something. So I asked her, because I thought, well, she's a PhD, she's a scholar. So I asked her, isn't it interesting how nobody in Turkey um, acknowledged the genocide? And you as a PhD, what what do you think about that? And she said, what genocide? (laughs) Wow. Wow. Yeah. So it's like indoctrination. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that happens and uh, it continues to happen. And I think sometimes, you know, in the West, we sometimes feel like we have all this freedom and that we have all this access to information and um, that we, we don't either <laughs> all the way. So, you know, we're all just sort of in silos in our own regions and countries and everywhere. And it's, uh, I think that's why people are so threatened with the idea of the internet or the dark web or any of these ways that people can get on and sort of bypass the control mechanisms and start sharing information. Uh, Because I think if we all got together and compared notes, it would be quite different what we'd come up with and the conclusions we'd draw. So your book, uh, Evil Archaeology, what is that book about? Well, Evil Archaeology is sort of a look at the history of demons. It's not quite demonology, but it's a look at the idea of the his- of the history and um, sort of legends and lore of demons and evil and relics and artifacts of all sorts and how those things um, are looked at as evil. It's mo- maybe more of a question of what is evil, um, but through the examination of cultural artifacts. And so it was uh, strangely... It was the movie The Exorcist that uh, got me thinking about these things. The uh, scene from the book and the movie is set in Iraq at an archaeological excavation. And uh, it, it, it the movie is about this girl that gets possessed and the demon that possesses her is a Sumerian demon uh, named Pazuzu. And I thought that's, you know, that's quite interesting how... Uh, Abrahamic religions took a lot of the ancient Mesopotamian demons and and created the mythos around those in particular, and those images became what we know of as demons in a lot of ways, even so much as to influence uh, the book and the movie The Exorcist. And so I, I sort of kicked that idea around a little bit. But then it wasn't a, it wasn't long after seeing the movie that I read a news story that was a little bit disturbing. It was uh, in North Carolina. Sheriff's deputies raided a home and discovered the remains of two men that had been missing for a while. And uh, at first it sounded like a just a run-of-the-mill news story, unfortunately, until I heard that the name of the killer was Pazuzu. 
And I, that made me pause. And I, I thought, wait, what? <laughs> and so I found that the guy who did this, uh, John Lawson, he legally changed his name to Pazuzu because he thought that he was honoring the demon and doing the demon's bidding. And he was worshiping some sort of version of a Sumerian religion that he made up where he would have to murder and cannibalize local neighbors and, and in the name of this demon. And so I thought... You know, I mean, so many things went into this. It was a really gory situation. And I, I cover it um, to a, an appropriate extent in the book. And um, it's it just made me think, well, you know, surely this man was 100%, you know, to blame for his actions. But I, he was inspired by this demon. And I considered the word inspired. It comes from the Latin inspirare, meaning to breathe or blow into. And the word originally meant... Uh, it describes specifically a supernatural being and when that supernatural being imparted an idea to someone. And so I thought this related to the concept then of doing something in spirit or in the spirit of. And I thought, well, maybe it's just splitting hairs over semantics. But perhaps this John Lawson was inspired, you know, by this demon and and he as he said and would that in our modern context be enough to count as a possession and so i started thinking about um you know what constitutes possession um what it is that it means to be inspired and so i looked at that in a historical context and i followed it along from the earliest even prehistoric accounts of exorcism all the way to modern day exorcisms um, and demonic possessions, also how to protect people from those entities. And I look at some very horrific or the, what I would consider the most horrific archaeological discoveries and sites and, um, you know, examined what makes them horrific and why, you know, why have people considered those places either evil or having been results of evil. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a comprehensive study. Uh, I would say it, it it is lacking some of the um, it it doesn't it doesn't address necessarily far as as many far eastern influences um, or even um, African influences that I may have liked. So that the part of the exorcists was always my favorite bit was the beginning archaeology bit. It's, it was the one that uh, made me get some goosebumps because I have always liked the this ancient ancient entity kind of concept. Uh, that's why I also liked H.P. Lovecraft because he described the ancient demon entity concept quite well. Yes, I, I agree. I think I think he did a very good job with that. And that idea of the ancient um, evil entities uh, was quite fascinating to me. And I wondered where does that belong now in our society or if that is even a factor. And so, um, you know, how, how, what are demons now? You know, that's something that I look at as well. Um, I, you know, that people have all these ideas of, um, you know, aliens and demons and the, the combination of these entities, are they interdimensional? Are they physical? You know, everybody has a different answer. And so I think it's a more of a shared phenomenon. Um, and so that's another bit of what I address in the book as well. Could it also be that they're not really evil uh, in the sense that, you know, uh, if I walk in the forest and I step on ants, you know, they might consider me evil, but, you know, they're just meaningless small creatures. It doesn't matter to me. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And that's something that the ancient world thought as well. And uh, cultures all over the world had their own idea of what these demons were. And, and what you'll find, though, that's very similar is that they were they were bad and good, that they were sometimes neutral or even very human in, in that nature. So um, so Pazuzu, the demon, for instance, you know, he, he would definitely, you know, be considered a demon. He did bad things and whatnot. But if you were a pregnant woman, you would actually have worn or wanted to have a Pazuzu necklace or plaque next to your bed because although he was considered evil, he could also be used as protection against a demon that they considered responsible for miscarriages and sudden infant death. Um, this demon was Lamashtu, to, and it was Pazuzu's wife. And it was believed that she could not have babies of her own. And so she would steal babies out of jealousy. Um, and so Pazuzu artifacts are really prevalent because so many people wanted to protect their babies from Pazuzu's jealous wife. And so, you know, you have, um, you know, this idea of, our, our interpretation of these creatures and 
are they evil? That that's a really good question because if you look at, in some ways, um, you know, you have people who had summoned these entities, and got they would receive advice or good information, perhaps pro- prophetic information, and and uh, maybe they would call them angels, whereas maybe they would be called demons, and so uh, there would be discrepancies among early alchemists, especially John Dee and Edward Kelly, who you know, would argue whether or not they were summoning um, angels versus demons. And so what are these entities? And, and you know, I spoke with Whitley Strieber a while back about this on his show. He discussed the entities that come to him on a regular basis and how he feels that they are definitely not, they're not um, pleasant. I, I don't know if he would go so far as to call them evil, but he did, he did not feel that they were um benevolent but he also explained that he there's a great benefit to them visiting and so i think what happens is is we're looking at the context and the idea of demons in an early in an early era i think in some ways they may have had a more advanced or sophisticated understanding of those entities than we do now i think because of popular media or the almost caricaturizing of these entities in a sense that now a lot of people seem to say, well, these demons are bad, these entities are good, and that's what they are, and that's it. And there's more of that black and white thinking, whereas I think it's a more complex issue that's uh, definitely worth more research. And maybe it's just semantics, but doesn't isn't demon just a word for a higher spirit, so it could be a positive, like a guardian angel? Yes, that's the, from the Greek. It did come from that. It was it was a it, an an entity that was supernatural, and it would inspire, or breathe into you, um, just different ideas or or wisdom in some ways. Uh, but then, when Christianity got involved in trying to spread, they would go through and find pagan deities that looked frightening maybe they they looked bestial in some ways because they would often be animal human hybrids or things that you'd find in nature uh they're very you know nature spirit oriented and they would literally demonize those beings in the case of pan pan you know had cloven hooves and you know was half man half goat and all this and so he was demonized to the extent that the idea that people have of a of a devil a devil with the cloven hooves and the you know half man half goat um that that's more of an image of pan so they literally took this pre-existing god that was the god the god of merrymaking and nature and uh you know fun and and and, um sexual promiscuity and some of the things that clearly the church was trying to say were taboo Um, but they took that and demonized and made it a demon figure and so, yeah, a lot of a lot of that. When you look into it, you start to find that it, the question of are these things evil, uh, it really doesn't necessarily hold up in the same way. Uh, but then that's a different than that. It is like semantics in a way, but I think it's an important um, component to that because uh, I don't think we look enough at the origin of our language and and you know some of this because in this day of consumerism and popular culture and entertainment media, uh, I don't I think it sort of hypnotizes us to an extent and a lot of people don't see further or deeper into the origins of some of those archetypes i'm not sure how correct this is uh, you probably know if you've studied it but isn't the word uh, cannibal from from uh, the term the priests of baal kahana baal and that they were you know uh, treating they take a, a person and they treat that person as a god give them everything and then make them live like a god and then they kill them and then they eat them and then they got the power from that person you know because they made it into a god so then they eat god i don't know if you've heard about this i think that there is a um it, there might be i'm not sure how far back that word goes but um it, it very well could be depending on uh its connection to a latin term but yeah that would be interesting, though. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised. You'd find that a lot. Uh, these words that we use every day, you know, really have a story to tell. And that later developed into the ritual in the Catholic Church of eating the body of Christ. Yes. Yes. This this idea of a sacrifice. Um, that's something that 
you find going all the way to Sumer, the idea of sacrificing flesh and eating and consuming it. Uh, it's a very ancient idea, and it has taken many different forms, and it does still stay with us in a lot of uh, Christian tradition. I've studied a lot of indigenous communities, and in, in the Amazon there are some cannibal communities, and sometimes it's misunderstood because um, they can have situations where there's an elder person in the community and the person is sick and it, it knows he's going to die and then uh, maybe it has a lot of wisdom and have had a lot of power in its, his life and it willingly when he dies they make a ritual and they all eat a little to take part of that person's good goodness or power or wisdom but it uh, from the Western perspective, it sounds macabre and like, oh, it's cannibals. But it's in their perspective, it's not really that strange. It would be, um, you know, like if you think about when you, your parents die and you keep them in an urn in your living room, that's also macabre if you think about it, you know. So it's a, it's a perspective, I guess. I think I think so. I know there's another uh, there's another culture that they uh, live with their deceased the corpses of their deceased family and um, in a regular time frame they they every day they dress them or you know have them. I think there's some pictures. I forget who they are, but there's uh they talk about them a lot on on National Geographic and some of these sites they'll they'll show. But it's uh, quite fascinating when you look at um, the idea of death and how people observe death. And yes, cannibalism, it seems just pretty awful. Uh, but if you are enculturated into, you know, a belief system that says otherwise, it could, there are, there are people who believe that, uh, you know, it, it is a way to show um, some sort of reverence for that person. And uh, it's, a, it's a holy and sacred act. And you would, and it's, it's very sacred to the point where, um, it would be the family members taking part in the consumption of another family member, or there'd be some sort of a, a significant tie to that. It wouldn't be just a stranger, because then that would be sacrilegious. So, you know, there are a lot of different ways that people look at this, and um, it's definitely shaped by your culture. So another way in which, you know, we are so quick to say something's evil, and while it doesn't seem like a good idea or very moral in our in our particular culture, it doesn't necessarily make it evil, like in a blanketed sense, you know. I think that would be cultural relativism. When I was younger, I dabbled a bit in demon summoning. Uh, not Nothing serious, but I, I stopped uh, because me and my friend who we that I did it with, we felt it was becoming too real. <laughs> and it's quite scary when you're... I mean, I'm sure most people have played with the Ouija board and that, but if you take it a bit further and you really try to summon a demon, and uh, I don't know if it's your imagination running wild, but suddenly you're thinking like, well, maybe we shouldn't open this door just in case. You know, I don't know if you've had any experience like that. I... um. A little bit, yeah. I've actually not, I don't think I've told anyone this story, but uh, I have not, you know, I played with a Ouija board and, and done those sorts of things when I was a kid, but I think the the only time I've ever had an experience similar where I thought, wait a minute, maybe some, there's something to this, is uh, through, through, strangely, meditation. I've had times where through meditation, uh, I've experienced things um, where it was almost as if I, I practicing a particular type of meditation. I had a an experience where uh, it was guided meditation, and and it was a, a particular practice. So it uh, was it was to initiate contact with I, I suppose interdimensional beings, and uh, I was I was a little skeptical. I mean, I would say a lot skeptical, but I tried. And from that, before that, my experience with meditation was just that I, I wasn't very good at it. It would make me very tired or I would be bored really quickly. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't think I'm doing it right, maybe, or whatever. But when I followed this particular method, um, I found myself actually having experiences that were I, I was not able to rationalize very well. So I started seeing strange kaleidoscopic you know, um, light and colors and light was just extraordinarily bright. And then there were beings and beings were talking and I thought I am hallucinating or something. And this was all just through meditation. And it, it really, really 
freaked me out for lack of a better term. And I, I, I wasn't able to really go back to practicing that because I just wasn't really sure of what to make of it. So I've, I've yet to understand what to make of it. I've researched it here and there, um, but it was really, I'm sure some people could be listening and say, well, that's nothing. I meditate and I do this all the time, or I've taken this psychedelic and that's what happened. For me, having gone in cold, clear skeptic thinking, nah, there's nothing to this. And I'm doing this meditation and then boom, things are happening internally. And in my vision, I thought, oh my gosh, what is going on? And I just, it was like too much too soon. I thought, oh, uh, no, I can't do this right now. This is like shattering my belief system. So I had to like step away a little bit. Do you think that um, the demons that people worshipped in the past, that it's dying out because it's um, uh, the the ones that were very popular have been absorbed into different modern religions like Christianity, I guess modern in this time frame. Uh, and then, uh, you know, with the modern society, I mean, it's uh, it, it, some of those traditions that are like pagan or they've transformed into very commercial traditions. So it, it's nothing left, really. Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it. The, the commercialization of it has um, diluted it to an extent. And I think there's not an, a lot of people who are performing these activities in the way that maybe they once did. Um, but... On the other hand, I think that as people evolve and change through time, I, I think that this experience of entities, whether we call them evil, um, neutral, or whatever we want to call them, however we want to describe them, these these otherworldly entities, I think that it's a phenomenon that's very human and very much with us to this day. And so as a result, uh, it's just changing shape or changing form how people are now starting to um, still contact them. So maybe at one point in, in the past, they would do rituals to contact them in one particular way or the other. Whereas today, you know, there might be ways like meditation or even, um, you know, DMT and, and things like this. Uh, so I think not that that wouldn't have been done in ancient times, but I think that the way that we are experiencing things now, um, they're just newer iterations of something that's already been done. So I think it's just something that is just evolving with us and that it's still with us and may always be with us. And I think it's just taking different names, if that makes sense. I think well, maybe what they called them then versus what we call them now. I mean, the Sumerians had the seven sages. Um, the Gnostics had the archons. There were the serpent gods of the Far East and Central America and the titans of the Greeks and Hopi have the snake brothers. Um, and then you could say the Elohim of the Old Testament. And so uh, perhaps these were all the same. Maybe it's just this idea that you're lifting a veil into some other world, some other dimension. And based on your where you are in space and time and cultural, you know, cultural bounds, that's what you name them. That's that's how you look at them. And so you have people now, you know, who experience things and and, uh, you know, through taking different uh, you know, mushrooms or DMT, and they, they see beings, and some will refer to them as machine elves or clockwork elves, but this idea of them being elves is something that you may hear. Um, but that's an interesting concept, really, because, you know, here we are again as people trying to use the tools that we may have in language to describe a phenomenon that's very difficult to describe. And so it's, we say elves, but do elves really do that idea justice? No. But it's as good as we can maybe verbalize until something else comes along. And so if you say that the, um, you know, maybe the Hopi had the snake brothers, I mean, their reference points were snakes. Um, what they saw could have been snake like, um, how best to describe things. And, you know, it's, it's, I think it's a matter of the difficulty it is to really describe the very, um, interesting and spiritual and mind blowing and almost impossible to describe spiritual, experience but you having to be limited in scope of both your language and culture and reference points and so i think that what we're looking at is probably something that is very much the same phenomenon or, or at least very similar and it's uh maybe we have a the problem of calling it all these different things and so we're not making that connection when you were doing your research for this book 
studying uh, uh, all these different demons or entities did it uh, did you ever get scared yourself like cuz i you know like that opening sequence of the exorcist it's it it's a bit unsettling like getting in contact with these ancient entities did you ever feel you were almost summoning them by looking into it too much at first i thought that was kind of preposterous and i told when i would tell people i'm writing this book they would express a little concern and say well make sure you're protecting yourself and i i was like oh yeah okay <laughs> i didn't really take it as seriously as perhaps i should have uh, and so as i started going through and, and doing this research i did have some strange experiences and i i um i include that in the afterword of the book um you know i wasn't sure if i should but i thought well in in the interest of honesty i think i need to divulge all the things that happened to me while i was writing the book and and some of which were uh you know a lot of actually a lot of which had to do strangely with electricity i ended up finding out that i had a, an electrical well i had a strange thing going on with my heart and i didn't know what was happening but there'd be points where i'd be researching um, different ancient texts in a research library and at one point i collapsed in the library and had to be taken out on on in an ambulance and when they checked my heart it was beating at like 200 beats per minute and it was crazy i was just about to pass out and there was no reason for it that they could find they just referred me to a cardiologist it happened again and again and it just kept happening and i went to so many specialists at the Cleveland Clinic and I got the very best medical care and nobody could tell me what it was other than your heart is healthy, everything's fine, we don't know what's happening. They referred me to an electrophysiologist and he told me that there was something disturbing the electrical pattern of my heart. He couldn't tell me what. He just told me, take a beta blocker and, you know, it seems like everything's okay. Just just take this medicine and you know, sorry, we don't have any more answers. And I thought, oh, that's weird. But I didn't really connect it to anything other than thinking, well, I just, you know, something strange with my electrical, you know, components. I don't, I don't know. It's just really weird. But then I, it started getting worse and I was very cold and my room would be very cold. I'd wake up shivering. And one night I was up late working on the book and I heard this sort of sound and it sounded like electricity almost comical, like it was just an electricity sound effect. And then I heard a big snap and I look and an outlet had just burst into flames and it had caught fire to a stack of National Geographic magazines I had sitting. And had I not been awake, I think the house would have burned down and it was just a disaster. So those things started happening. And, you know, it, it, it was really uncomfortable. There were a lot of weird feelings. And then I started having nightmares, really bad nightmares. And I just chalked it up to, well, I'm reading all this spooky stuff, you know, and it's sticking in my head and, and maybe that's what's going on. But I kept having nightmares of very specific demons. And I, it really didn't, it really did freak me out some. And I thought, well, I'm just still, I'm being superstitious. And, you know, I didn't really connect all of those things together. Finally, I was working on my, um, you know, finishing the book and my cat this whole time, um, he had been getting very ill and I was taking him to the vet off and on and they didn't know what was wrong with them. But, um, you know, we were going through that at the time and the night that I was finishing the book, my cat just collapsed. And so the next morning when the book was finished, you know, he had, he had, he had passed and I thought, oh my gosh, this is just, I'm going through some bad luck. That's all I kept thinking was what's next, you know? And so when I mentioned this though, to a friend, they, who was actually a psychic medium, she suggested that uh, I had a negative entity that had attached itself to this demonology book that I had brought home in the very beginning part of my research. Um, she thought that maybe an entity had jumped from the book to my cat and used the cat as a scapegoat. And I thought, well, this is, you know, she, she explained that it was probably the demon that was causing electrical disturbances in my house and that I was being um, obsessed or, she said, also not possessed, but um, oppressed, have, going through a demon oppression. So she, I, I still wasn't sure what to make of all this, but she did just, you know, for safety's sake, she insisted on uh, burning sage in my home office and blessing the area as a precaution. And, and you know, after that and after speaking to some other people about the issue and having more blessings done. Um, it was over. I've had not, I've actually not had to take my beta blocker. I've not had to 
you know, my medicine, I've not had to take that. Um, everything has been back to normal. I've had an electrician come out and check. They said, there's nothing wrong with the house. It was funny. I was saying to the publisher, you know, some of this, and he said, you know, what's weird is the day that we were starting to print the book, the book was actually a little late coming out because they couldn't get it printed on time because they had an electrical storm that came out and totally shut down the printers and it wouldn't print it. And I was like, okay, that's a little spooky. So again, you know, it's easy to sort of make those connections and stuff, but I, I couldn't help but be a little bit, um, well, maybe just, I'll just say I was very relieved to get the book done. I think that's that's where I'll leave it. I've had many similar situations and uh, I know I have friends who've had similar situations as well. And uh, I think uh, um, it can be. I don't. Don't. I mean, I don't know if what science can say about it. If it's the brain who affects it, or if it's real. But uh, I think if you open the door to dark energies, and they have you have the door open too long, they can probably come in and totally take over. And maybe that's what happens to like serial killers. They're often quite weak people i mean the classical stereotype of a serial killer is a feeble man you know they're usually not like some macho masculine guy they're usually quite like uh, weak you know and maybe they can't resist such energies and that's why they and and once you take a step in that direction you know you can it's very hard to go back yeah, I think so. I think that's. I interview an exorcist named Bill Bean for the book, and he he really covers that quite well in uh, discussing how people should be in what he called warrior mode. How basically your mindset, your surroundings, your environment, all these things can leave you vulnerable to some sort of a negative entity or energy. Um, so definitely, if you know, I would hesitate to say weak-minded because it's very insulting. But in a way, you know, if you're in a bad place. You may not have the strength to, you know, fight maybe that those those demons. I mean, there again, we can call them demons. You know, when people say they have, um, you know, drug problems or alcohol problems or you know something, they sometimes refer to those as their demons. And so I think that the idea of demon is a maybe a good word um, to in, in 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 encapsulate these experiences that we just can't quite explain, but we all sort of know when we see it. Because you can, in a sense, you can brainwash yourself for uh, for good things. Like, for instance, I uh, when I was younger, I was more an angry person and more. Uh, I didn't do. I didn't commit any revenge, but a lot of ideas of revenge and uh, you know that kind of direction. And I used to like to watch more angry movies or horror or where it is more death and murder. And then um, I, I um, was healed from all this through ayahuasca ceremonies. And after that, I've stopped watching those kinds of movies because I've, I felt like when, when we, if I watch them now, uh, uh, they kind of disgust me in a bit. Like, I don't want to have that energy in my life. I agree. Yeah, I'm the same way. I'm not really big on the horror movies or some of these different things. Uh, when I was younger, I was, you know, I liked all that stuff, but... Um, yeah, I, I, I watch now I'm very mindful of the media that I consume because, you know, it's like food you know, you watch what you eat and make sure you eat organic food because it nourishes the body. But then the, the sensory inputs of, you know, what you're watching or things you're listening to, that's food for the, the mind and the soul. And so I try to, you know, think organically <laughs> and, you know, put, put things like that into perspective where, you know, I don't want that negative energy invading my headspace and so yeah even if it was just that i mean all the consumption of some of these things that i was researching for the book you know really awful human sacrifice practices and you know demons and murders and all these things i think that you know being in my head probably contributed to a lot of nightmares and so that would be real enough for me so if uh, somebody would get your book and read it would it be more like an historical account of of and the evolution of all these different entities? How would you how would you sell the book if you know what I mean? Yes, it's it's definitely an evolution of these entities, and then a question of how can we know for sure 
if these entities can have a real impact on the physical world. So can places be haunted? Can can um, objects be haunted or possessed in some way? And then it also goes into how can somebody protect themselves? Um, what are the ways historically have people protected themselves, whether it be through amulets or ritual um, or just simple prayers or thoughts? Uh, and so it really does look at that from a, a historic survey perspective, but then it gives practical advice, too, for how to protect yourself in the here and now and what to do if you think you're possessed now or have some sort of a problem in that that way. But uh, it does that through looking. The book does that through looking at archaeological sites and uh, historical accounts. Does the Catholic Church still do exorcisms? Yes, they do. They do, and that they've increased in number over the past 10 years. I don't yeah. know if that's because more people need them or if they've just maybe <laughs> – they, they have not been very clear as to why they're doing more, but they're doing more. Because they don't really advertise it so much. Uh... <laughs> no, they don't. They don't, but uh, they do it, and they're doing more of them. And then there are people who, you know, are doing it that are not Catholic. And so in the book, I discuss a, an exorcism that I attended in a town in South Carolina that was very untraditional and unlike any other exorcism that, you know, you would think of from a, like a Catholic perspective. Um, it was it was a little bit exciting, if you will, um, a woman who was wheeled into the room with in a, in a hospital bed um, and she started growling and moaning and they had goats and it was uh, i learned after the fact that it, uh, it was more more of a pentecostal type faith and so they had a lot of uh different beliefs and different traditions in in how they would do these possession um these exorcisms um so yeah it does i i do look at modern day exorcisms but then i also look at um the earliest depictions of exorcism and as i said even going so far as to prehistory um uh, where there's evidence of uh prehistoric people using a surgical procedure called trepanning, where they drill a hole in their head uh, in order to release the demons or spirits from from their head. Um, there have been, you know, other reasons people have argued and postulated that people have drilled the holes in their heads this way. Some of those are definitely uh, relieving intracranial pressure um, after a, um, a blow to the head or something like that. Um, but then there is also the practice of doing it to allow imprisoned spirits or supernatural beings to escape. Um, and so you have evidence of that dating back at least 60,000 years. Um, and it, it's a it's a surgical procedure that's found in almost every part of the world. And so, but the more recognizable depiction of exorcism that we would think of, um, you know, with a priest and calling out the name of a demon and this sort of thing is uh, something that can be found as far back as 4,000 years ago in the cuneiform tablets. Archaeologists have found uh, Mesopotamian medical texts that outline exorcism rites that appear very similar to the ones in the Catholic Church. The British Museum has about a thousand cuneiform tablets of medical texts, and of that thousand, 660 of them specifically reference how to perform exorcisms. And they did everything from modeling clay figures of the demons and then having them sort of do battle like action figures, and all the way to the um, what we would see now, which is a priest blessing somebody from the foot of their bed and, and demanding to know the name of the demon. But but in the book, I cover uh, many different ways that the ancient Sumerians uh, performed exorcism. And so it was pretty interesting to research that. It might sound illogical to the scientific community, but there's more and more evidence of the universe being made up of energies and vibrations. And in all shamanistic cultures, they've always worked with energies. And so, you know, cancer could be just a bad energy. And you may, if you use, maybe if you use a, a sculpture of a demon, it's it's more like a tool to help the person that's sick uh, visualize and that way 
attract this energy out and you know no that's that makes a lot of sense i mean the placebo effect is a real effect and people who use prayer and these different things it, it has a market effect on on people's recovery and, and and their diseases so there may be something to it i know that in looking at this the scientific basis for it i found that in morocco they've been studying the science behind demonic possession since the 90s and under the theory that diseases like cancer um are their uh sort of a penetration of a demonic spirit into the human body in a physical form that they compare to microbes, like energy microbes in a way. They have a, a bit of a germ theory of demonology. And so they use a molecular explanation for demons and investigate that um, to sort of open up the possibility for a scientific explanation beyond, say, mental illness or imagination. Uh, and so what's interesting with that is that they think that these demons or these energies, um, they're, actual, they're actually self-contained units of energy like microbes. And so they argue the existence of evil sort of spirit molecules. Um, they actually don't depend on human perception that they're um, – you know, their, their composition makes them averse to light, which explains why they appear at night or in the dark. They also believe that these, these microbes or demons have their own special physical laws and life cycles and can rapidly multiply after entering the bloodstream, so much so that they've devised a mathematic formula to calculate these molecular demons' movements and behavior. And so it's a really interesting way of looking at that and it's not unlike how the Sumerians saw demons they they looked at the demonic possession as a, a type of sickness and that's the reason they demanded the name of the demon because to them it was getting the diagnosis so if they said well the demon is you know this it was an anthropomorphized version of a disease that then once they understood it they were able to apply the proper healing mechanisms or medicines or whichever you know whatever it called for so it was definitely intertwined with healing and medicine and in in some ways it still is so uh, i think it does have a lot to do with energy work and maybe we're just not quite you know understanding it because we so much now separate mind and body and have just science and spirit and instead we need to you know maybe pull those in a little closer and we might have better answers Sumeria is like a fascinating mystery because it's like classed as, I guess, well, the first real civilization uh, officially. Uh, what, what, what's your view of what it was? Was it like uh, some sort of ancient version of modern day America, like some powerful empire or was it uh, a, a wonderful kingdom or what's, what, what's your view of what it was? I think that what it was... Given that it was the first organized civilization that was uh, bureaucratic, I think that's an important distinction because we have, um, you know, Gobekli Tepe and a lot of places that we're finding now that show evidence of civilized behavior. But the difference with Sumer is that it was formalized and civilized and it showed the makings of high culture, so math and, and science and these sorts of things, but also um red tape and bureaucracy where everything was recorded everything was about systems system theory and there was a hierarchy and you know they even had like as we were speaking of, of their medical texts they had medical school and then they had medical licensing they even had a form of malpractice insurance all of these things that kind of make up this you know i guess what you think of is maybe america or the west or any of these like larger systems of of uh, civilization, I think I would, I think I would compare it more to Babylon, given that Babylon did come out of that. But that biblical idea or archetypal idea of what we have, that we have of Babylon, where it's this, be, this behemoth of a of a bureaucratic system that just would chew people up and spit it out, and then eventually fall. I think that's sort of what it was. It was where we were getting a humans were getting a little too big, you know, and then and then as a result. It just, uh, I think that in Sumer, it was the start of the consumer mindset. It was this, it was the start of a lot of great things, agriculture, science, all the ways that man could sort of manipulate nature. But it was also then the start of all the, the, the bad things that come along with that. And so it, it was, I, I think that when you look at the stories of Eden, Garden of Eden and the civilization of man and, 
And, you know, even the Epic of Gilgamesh, where there's this story of a king who, you know, is, is befriending a wild, furry man of the woods, Enkidu, and there's this clash of, of civil versus, you know, wild. I think all of these stories really do speak to that, that this was a time in human history where we were just coming out of the wilderness, and we were really formalizing that and trying to figure out our place and making a lot of mistakes and making a lot of advancements in the meantime. But I don't know if there's really anything like it. I think it was a unique thing in human history that, you know, is maybe incomparable to the, the, the systems we know now. You mentioned the Garden of Eden, and I've always liked the, the Gnostic version of that story where the god is actually a demon and the serpent is actually the good guy trying to help uh, Eve to see when she eat, eats the fruit to see that the, what that thing that calls itself the Lord is uh, just a small uh, like um, manipulative uh, demigod, you know. Yeah, yeah, that is a very interesting one. I think that uh, a big problem has been Bible literalism. I think that the ancient texts. Uh, and those that are even included in the Bible are, have so much wisdom and so much information and in some ways historical knowledge, but because of um, some of you know the, the ways that religions have taken those texts and used them for different purposes, it's really, it's done a huge disservice to that literature. And as a result, people just discount it sometimes altogether. Um, but I, I try to look at it still and use it as a way to understand um, in a holistic sense just ancient texts altogether especially considering that in the old testament a lot of that information came from the the far, uh, far older you know sources like ancient sumer and so definitely a lot of ways to look at the garden of eden story do you have you written other books uh, and uh, also can you tell the listeners where to get your books sure yes i have i've written a few other books uh, one is called the sumerian controversy it is a uh, short special report it was about an elite power structure that was funding the uh, uh, a recent discovery near the ancient mesopotamian city of ur uh, it was being funded by big oil elite families and uh, banking families and private equities collectors and so i i I sort of exposed how the cuneiform tablets have been taken out of that site and what's been going on since. And so I did a follow-up to that called Land of the Watchers that follows along that same path of what is it that they could be looking for in, in you know, these secret archaeological excavations. I also have a book called Anthrotheology, It's Searching for God in Man. And that book is about the origin of consciousness. And it deals with a lot more of the um, Gnostic ideas of consciousness and uh, some other some other theorists like Julian Jaynes and the breakdown of the bicameral mind and um, some physiological components to consciousness. It's just sort of a, a look at what it means to be conscious, but what the archaeological record um, has to say on that. So, um, And I have another book coming out. It's going to be the Anunnaki Connection, and that's going to deal with a lot of different things we were just speaking about with the uh, um, Garden of Eden and some of these uh, ideas of the origin of civilization itself. And that should be out sometime and then this maybe late this year. Or so, but all my stuff is available on my website at www.drheatherlynn.com. And there you can find everything you need to know. There's also free books. Um, you know, if you sign up for my newsletter, you get uh, free books every time I send one, uh, free eBooks that are only available to my newsletter subscribers. And uh, my books are available at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, and pretty much everywhere. Great. It was nice uh, talking to you. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me on. If you want to check out Dr. Heather Lynn's work, simply head over to drheatherlynn.com. That's drheatherlynn.com. Demon? Yes. Fuck. That's not good. That's not good. Jay, you fool. I say unto thee... The power of Christ compels you! Oh, does it? Does it compel me? The power of Christ compels you! Does it, Jay? The power of Christ compels you! Is the power of Christ compelling me? Is that what's happening? The power of Christ <laughs> compels you! Guess what? It's not that compelling. That was from the film This Is The End. <laughs> Sorry. 
couldn't resist. Anyway, no disrespect to Pazuzu. Imagine a USB out of wood with a DMT molecule engraved on both sides. 32 gigabyte containing the first 200 episodes of the podcast and hours upon hours upon hours of additional material previously only available to patrons. If you want to get your grubby little hands on this, then go to naturalbornalchemist.com, check out the merchandise page and buy the USB 200. Support the podcast. Get the USB. I'd buy that for a dollar. Here's a transmix version of the Exorcist theme song called Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield. The remix is done by SSTWL Music. I'll see you all in a week. Freedom is in the mind.